0: the AUKUS Defence Pact, and Australia's future submarines.
1: Inside Beijing, I I keep thinking that there will be senior people inside the Communist Party who will be thinking to themselves, wow, these Xi Jinping-approved policies are not working for China's interests.
0: An update on climate change.
2: And an example of that is this, the the meandering jet stream, which, as mentioned, caused the extreme heat and fires on the West Coast and the extreme flooding in parts of Europe and in parts of Asia.
0: And the impact of the Taliban takeover on Afghanistan's drug trade.
3: What it meant is that the opium traders who gave seasonal loans to opium growers then had a season worth of farmers who basically defaulted on their loans, weren't able to pay it, and were forced to sell all sorts of things from land and livestock to even in some cases, daughters.
0: This is Policy, Guns & Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Yesterday, Prime Minister Morrison, President Biden and Prime Minister Johnson announced the establishment of a new defence pact between Australia, the US and the UK. As part of this new partnership, Australia will acquire nuclear-powered submarines and has cancelled the $90 billion submarines program with France's naval group. Peter Jennings, Michael Shoebridge, and Dr Marcus Hellier share their initial reactions to this new pact and what it all means for Australia's defence capabilities.
4: Peter Jennings, Marcus Hellyer, here we are on the 16th of September 2021, not even six years from when the momentous decision to choose the French to be Australia's partner to build the world's biggest, best, conventional diesel-powered submarine was made. And this morning we heard the U.S. President, the U.K. Prime Minister and our Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced that we three nations were going to build an Australian nuclear submarine as part of a really tight uh, defence technology pact between the three countries. What's caused the shift, Peter?
1: Well, a remarkable story, Michael, is the only way to put it. Uh, this is one of the biggest strategic changes I think I've seen in my 30-year-plus my, uh, uh, career in, in the field. And an irony also, when you think about it, that um, six years ago, Australia selected essentially a nuclear-designed submarine and then spent several hundred million dollars working on changing that nuclear propulsion capability to a conventional capability only to walk from the project saying to the French, no, we want a nuclear submarine after all. You know, that's going to take years of analysis. And I fear it's not going to be a good story about how it is that, you know, what was going to be the largest procurement project in Australian history ended up being utterly friendless in Canberra because no one in defence and no one in government could somehow explain the purpose of the project uh, to the Australian people. Here we have now a change whereby uh, the United States, for the first time in 60 years, has opened up its nuclear secrets to an ally. It it did so all those years ago with the British. It's now choosing to do so with us. I believe a decision of President Biden directly, uh, which creates an opportunity, a remarkable opportunity for the three countries to closely align their science, their technology, their defence capability, know-how.
4: It's an enormous shift from the US and UK as well. Like back in 2016, I don't think it was likely that either of them would have thought sharing nuclear submarine technology with Australia was a priority. Uh, But this is all obviously driven by China and China under Xi. We we should come back to what it means for the European shift to the Indo-Pacific as well, and what Australia's role can be after this with those partners. I wonder though. Marcus, does this finally break the magic pudding that's 2% of GDP on defence in Australia?
5: Yeah, great question. And and de- the defence officials are kind of suggesting that it, it may, that it, they've sort of suggested that there's going to be new money for this, that the government has said, pay what it costs we don't want you to give up any anything existing in the program so that would imply that if you're buying something that costs more that you know the government is going to ante up more money now what that means in percentages who knows you know cancelling the attack program does free up a lot of money so the attack program was planning to spend over a billion dollars a year Uh, This year, and that I, by my calculation, over the next few years, as we uh, move towards the start of construction, was going to be moving to about $2 billion a year. So, you know, that's a lot of money that uh, frees up in the short term to kick off this new program. You know, over the longer term, though, you know, um, the government has indicated it's going to cost more than the intact class. So we're probably going to have to find more money. And it's hard to imagine that, you know, all of the infrastructure you need to support nuclear submarines, you know, from the regulatory mechanisms right across many aspects of government it's hard to imagine that that's going to cost less than conventional submarines so i think in the longer term yes we're going to need it's going to cost more but the government has said that it's going to it's going to cover that so yeah i do think we're mo- we are moving well beyond two percent you know whether that's mm-hmm. the three percent that is aiming for or beyond i'm not sure but it it will be more In the short term, there's cash available. In the longer term, where the government's going to have to pony up more money.
4: Paul Keating said today, well, this is a dumb decision because if uh, the US and NATO couldn't beat the Taliban, then there's no hope in prevailing in any kind of military contest with China. So uh, what's the point? Um, How do you think Beijing is going to view this? Will they see it as what it is, a growing international move to really recognise them as a systemic challenge and deter them? What what do you think their reaction and the region's reaction is going to be?
1: There'll be a a public reaction and I suspect private reactions inside Beijing, Michael. uh, The public reaction will be more of what we've heard already uh, and and have heard over so many years. So we, we will be accused of having a Cold War mentality of teaming up to beat China that is going to be the the nature of the rhetoric, and of course, that will then be amplified by those folk who are inclined to see things China's way in Australia and and around the world. Inside Beijing, I, I keep thinking that there will be senior people inside the Communist Party who will be thinking to themselves, "Wow, these Xi Jinping approved policies are not working for China's interests." Um, uh, you, you know, we we have managed to move literally in the space of five years to a point where large parts of the world are now organising themselves against us.
2: Mm. Where, what struggle
1: uh, do
4: we actually want with the rest of the world?
1: Yeah, where, where trust in China has plummeted in populations all around the world. So I, I'm convinced that there will be folk that are now deeply worried about the direction that uh, Xi Jinping is taking his country. The challenge is no one's really going to be in a position to stop him, to tap him on the shoulder and say, you've got this wrong, because you know Xi has such control over the instruments of repression in China that I think his personal position is secure for quite some time to come. But you know what this might do, Michael, is to start to change Xi Jinping's calculation of risk when it comes to a place like Taiwan. Mm. Uh, it's one thing to think he might be able to get away with it if the world is looking in a different direction and he can just manage a sort of a fait accompli like he did with expanding China's control in the South China Sea. If he's got Britain, the US, Australia, Japan, a whole bunch of other countries now deeply concerned about Chinese military adventurism inside the first island chain, that might lead uh, Xi Jinping to recalculate and conclude that this is not a smart move to attack Taiwan.
2: Mm.
4: It's an epic decision for Australia and for the US and the UK. But how do we now show other European partners that we take them seriously and and we want to work with them rather than reignite the Anglosphere. You, know, you can see the French government reaction saying, well, this shows why Europe has to build its own autonomy. Um, that could be an own goal. Is this the time to really put mainline effort and maybe some money into the free trade agreement with the EU?
1: Look, I think this has been a disastrous uh, situation as far as the relationship with France is concerned and, and, and Australia continues to disappoint and to underinvest in in our European relationships, which surely should be a first port of call uh, if you're thinking about identifying with like-minded democracies Mm. and a whole bunch of countries which, by the way, are interested in doing more things in the uh, Indo-Pacific region. So I Mm. think there should be now a, a, a significant Australian effort to do more with Europe to try and triage what will clearly be a very unhappy Paris uh, right now Mm. uh, and to, you know, do do what we can to extend our our engagement there. Just as the Europeans are writing strategies for engagement in the Indo-Pacific, Michael, we we Mm. need to have an Australian strategy for engagement in Europe and we need to be prepared to pay for it. So I come Mm. to the, you know, the baseline of this is that if we want to do all of these marvellous things, we have to front up for the leadership role that we keep saying we're ready for. And that means spending more money on defence, more money on foreign affairs, uh, and actually you know, treating our leadership seriously if we want others to treat us seriously as well.
4: Yes, and showing some continuity of per- purpose. And Marcus, my last uh, thought is about the national shipbuilding enterprise. Uh, is this snakes and ladders where all that has to start again? Or do we still have some useful capability to at least build these submarines out of all the investment we've seen?
5: Well, I think there's definitely a snakes and ladders aspect going on here, and it's it's, the government itself has said, we're not going to do this any faster than we we did with the, we're going to do with the attack class that it's two to four years slower. And I think that's, you know, probably very optimistic view. So, you know, I think the challenge for us is how do we get capability sooner? And how do we use the shipbuilding enterprise that we've spent a lot of money establishing? So building a, a new surface shipyard and you know going down the track of building a new submarine shipyard. How do we use that that productive capability to get capability? military capability sooner you know the the idea of building more air warfare destroyers has been raised i think you and i both think there's a lot of merit to that idea we've got the problem now that hunter class frigates being delayed we've also now got a delay essentially to the submarine program how do we develop the, the shipbuilding workforce that we're going to need in the future? And how do we actually get military capability sooner? And I think one solution to that is, let's build some Hobart class air warfare destroyers. We know how to do it. They're a great capability. As I said, there's a lot of cash has been freed up in the short term by cancelling the attack class program. So sure hobart is not a submarine it's not the same capability but it gives us something quickly and it helps keep the momentum going in that naval shipbuilding enterprise
4: i think today is a real demonstration of strategic imagination not just from the australian government but from our american and uk allies and partners and overall that's a really positive development let's hope it's the first of many that demonstrate that sense of purpose and urgency. Thanks very much, Peter. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. Michael. Thanks,
1: Marcus.
0: This summer in the Northern Hemisphere was marked with unprecedented floods, fires, droughts and heat waves. Anastasia Kapetis and Dr. Robert Glasser discussed these catastrophic events and how Australia can prepare for simultaneous climate hazards domestically and in our region.
6: So welcome everyone uh, for uh, our regular climate pod. And today uh, we're talking to Dr. Robert Glasser, who's the head of ASPE's Centre for Climate uh, and Security Policy. Robert, in terms of the the kinds of crazy weather we've seen around the globe um, over the last six months, what are the links actually between climate and these pretty extreme weather patterns?
2: Well, there are a lot of links uh... Uh, between these events and the the extreme weather we've seen. As you probably know, and and certainly hopefully most listeners know, our climate has now warmed by over one degree above pre-industrial levels. And even though that sounds like a very small increase, it has huge implications. It's a bit like if you think of, uh, you know, when you have a fever, you have a normal temperature, one or two degrees, three or four degrees can be fatal. And similarly with warming climates, one or two degrees of warming have huge impacts. Now, one of the main impacts is temperatures are rising. And as temperatures rise, um, people who are already living in hot areas are exposed to extreme heat. And actually in Australia, extreme heat is the leading cause of death of hazards, uh, leading hazard cause of death. So there are some very fundamental issues just with temperature rise. But also when we see climate change uh, increasing, uh, temperature rise, it also has an effect, can have an effect on the jet stream in the northern hemisphere, in particular because the poles are warming now twice as fast as the equator. It's causing the jet stream that ordinarily pretty much goes in a steady uh, direction and uh, form to begin meandering a bit. And sometimes when it meanders, it can form these blocking cells uh, that then lock in place extreme weather. And that's what we've been seeing over the last uh, period, last few months in North America, Northwestern America and, can- and and Southwestern Canada. We have these record-setting extreme temperature events that are really just absolutely unprecedented um, and, of course, linked to the drought the outbreak of fires then uh, that are also record setting. Of course, last year's uh, California suffered the most uh, the most extensive and severe fire damage in its history. And this year they're on track, at least one of the fires to even potentially exceeding the records from last year.
6: So in terms of what we can expect um, in the future, Robert, can we expect uh, future similar chaotic weather um, is chaos what we can expect, rather than uh, thinking that uh, global warming will affect uh, different places, in, but in you know intensely, but in relatively uniform ways?
2: Chaos maybe is too uh, loaded a word. I guess I would say that um, as the climate continues to warm, the way the patterns that the climate system has established in a, in a in a stable climate for distributing heat around the planet are going to change, and they can make sudden changes. And an example of that is this: the the meandering jet stream, which, as mentioned, caused the extreme heat and fires on the West Coast, and the extreme flooding in parts of Europe and in parts of Asia. Similar event happened in 2010 and 2011, where again, a blocking event caused fires and extreme heat in Russia that killed 50,000 Russians. People don't usually realize this. I think that is the seventh or eighth most uh, destructive uh, hazard in europe over the past 50 years so it's absolutely a huge event and with climate change as the pattern of the distribution of heat changes we'll start seeing major impacts in simultaneous impacts in various parts of the planet and there are a number of naturally occurring uh, extreme events, weather events, El Niños and La Niña. El Niños in Australia associated with extreme heat. La Niñas with extreme flooding and increased cyclones. Those events will now be happening on the back of a climate that is already over one degree warmer and will be likely two degrees warmer. And so those extremes become even more extreme when they happen, and causing simultaneous extreme events. These uh, the uh, the incre- the ex- incidence of extreme el nino events will double according to the ipcc uh, within 10 years once we reach 1.5 degrees of warming
6: so australia's just had a period a really difficult year of you know rolling covid lockdowns what can they expect from this summer is it likely that we'll have a repeat of the Black Summer of uh, two years ago?
2: I don't think that's likely this year. Although we certainly, uh, the latest bushfire risk assessment suggests there are parts of Australia that are at higher than normal risk of bushfires, particularly places that didn't burn and places that where there's a lot of grass growth, grassland growth following the La Niña linked rains that we've had, and some of the, our listeners may be aware that we're, there's kind of a La Nina watch in effect. So we may be actually going from a La Nina into another La Nina, which will mean more rainfall. So I think in the next year, if the La Nina does emerge, and I think it's 60 or 70 percent chance that it will, probably within a month or two, then we can expect the the larger risk, I think, is flooding, as we saw this year or earlier or actually, uh, yeah, earlier this year, and some to some extent, uh, the end of last year. But I think if that does happen, it's really in 2023, that, or 2022-23, where I think the bushfire risk, if the La Nina then uh, disappears, if we have an El Nino, where again, we have extreme heat and dryness, where all the vegetation that has resulted from these wet consecutive wet years would lead to very severe fire risk.
6: Can I just ask you just to briefly say, what do you think Australia needs to do to prepare for for that scenario in a couple of years?
2: Well, I think uh, there are a number first of all, there are a number of recommendations from the Bushfire Royal Commission um, or the Royal Commission into Natural Disaster Hazards, as I think it's more formally called, which are now being implemented that will, will improve our ability, particularly to respond to disasters and to, and to uh, work with communities during extreme bushfire events. And there's certainly other recommendations linked to uh clearing of of, uh, of, of controlled burning and a number of other recommendations that if they're implemented and implemented on a large enough scale, will reduce the impact of the bushfires that you know these the, the risks of extreme events like we had uh, last summer black summer but again with climate change with the with the continuing warming of the planet we will dry places in australia will get drier they will they will have more extreme rain events that cause rapid growth followed by drought and extreme heat And that's a deadly combination for bushfire risk on scales that could even surpass what we saw with Black Summer, and certainly will surpass that as the climate warms to two degrees and beyond. So I think what we really have to be considering now in the face of these changes is not just things like early warning and controlled burns, but really looking at land use planning, where Australians are settling, what the readjusting hazard maps so that even what we describe as a bushfire hazard zone reflects climate change and also the scale of the fires that result in you know these fires that are creating their own weather, which means that even areas outside of traditional bushfire hazard zones are exposed and vulnerable. I think we really need to be thinking fundamentally about relocating communities. That applies to extreme weather events on coasts and flood zones because we will have more extreme flooding we have to think even fundamentally about issues like when we take our holidays it is an unfortunate confluence of events that we tend to take our holidays at the moment of maximum bushfire risk and in places that are generally exposed to those risks so i think what will happen over the next decade is that approach to these issues will move from being incremental to really answering some very fundamental questions about where we're living and how we're living.
6: Can I just also ask, has reports uh, like, for example, the one that was released three weeks ago from the IPCC, have those kinds of reports factored in the feedback loops from massive bushfire events like the one we experienced in Black Summer? And the massive release of carbon that those entail.
2: One of the points a number of consecutive IPCC assessment reports uh, have made is that that it is very difficult to analyze compound hazards and cascading impacts. Just it's hard enough to answer a question: What impact will rising temperature have on rice production in the Mekong? It's extremely, it's very difficult, often problematic to even to answer a question, well, what about extreme heat, changes in distribution of pests, the changes in the distribution of the predators that attack pests, the fact that that's happening with extreme flooding events more often, the fact that that's happening with extreme storms and coastal inundation and saltwater intrusion the fact that that's happening with displaced communities and people who are being forced to move because of consecutive disasters, you know, the the fact that that's happening consecutively with impacts on fisheries, because fish are moving to the poles to escape the warming waters and coral reefs, which are the fish nurseries for 10% of the global fish populations will have 70 to 90% of them, according to the IPCC, will have collapsed at 1.5 degrees of warming again, and probably within a decade. So, those IPCC's reports note that the difficulty of analysing this. Mm-hmm. Each year, they've get, become better at doing it. They're more and more focus, much more focus on compound hazards and cascading impacts. In the latest report, uh, actually, we haven't seen the latest, the relevant working group report on these issues, but I'm sure when we see it uh, next year. It will, have, it will really focus quite prominently on compound hazards and cascading impacts.
6: Look, and finally, um, the World Meteorological Organization has released a report. What does that add to our knowledge of, uh, of, of the direction of climate change and its effects?
2: Well, what we're seeing is that uh, from that report, it's the, it's the WMO Atlas of Mortality and Economic Losses from Weather uh, and Climate and Water Extremes. What we're seeing is that there's a very significant increase over this period of time, 1970 to 2019, of disasters. Now, that's partly because of better reporting. It's partly because of the fact that the population is increasing, so there are more people in places that are exposed to hazards. But it's also very clearly, as the report points out, linked to the fact that the climate is warming, all the issues we've been discussing. So I think that's one point that's made. Second main point in that report is that although the economic cost of these disasters has been skyrocketing over the last decade, um, the loss of life actually has decreased almost threefold from 1970 to 2019. And that's primarily because we're getting better at early warning about relocating communities when storms are threatening Mexico recently a couple of years ago, moved over a million people away from the path of a of a hurricane that was threatening the west coast of the country. These are things that didn't happen twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Mm. And so we're we're also, of course, building structures that are more secure. Bangladesh has put in cyclone shelters. So there are a range of measures that are being put have been put in place to reduce our exposure to hazards and that's resulting in a huge decrease in loss of life. Sadly, we can expect that trend to begin reversing as the climate continues to warm, particularly in less developed countries, which are already uh, absorbed the lion's share of the existing uh, deaths, even recently from disasters.
6: Well, thank you very much, Robert. Thank you again for updating us on climate news in the lead up, uh, obviously, to the big COP meeting at the end of the year in Glasgow. And I just note that Glasgow, uh, I think today recorded its highest ever temperature.
2: Yes, uh, that I hadn't noticed that Anastasia, that's interesting and uh, I'm sure sadly the same thing is happening in a number of different places around the world, these simultaneous record setting events and hopefully, and I am optimistic that these events will generate further political commitment and ambition to reduce greenhouse gases and address this really unprecedented global challenge.
6: That will be fascinating to watch in the lead up um, to November.
0: Back in 2000, the Taliban announced a ban against growing opium poppy, which led to a decline in production until the beginning of the US war in 2001. With the return of the Taliban to power, Dr. John Coyne and Dr. Tegan Westendorf consider what this means for Afghanistan's opium production, and what impacts the Taliban's policies will have on the global drug
7: trade. Over the last two or three weeks since the Taliban's return to power in Afghanistan, they've made some very clear statements, reminiscent of their statements in 2000, that they would finish up and end the trade and cultivation of opium, poppy and heroin. Now, this has some very significant implications for the global supply Of heroin Um, it also has some very specific influences and changes on the future of drug trades in general um, and more specifically trade out of southeast asia or the golden triangle so tegan i don't know if you want to lead us away what's your initial thoughts on this ban by the taliban
3: Well, look, in reflecting on the 2001 ban, I think that there are some really interesting lessons about international drug policy that I'm really keen to see how they play out. So basically the last time this happened, I think the key implications were that international drug policy needs to target both the drivers behind supply and demand. And so a key lesson was that farmers really need alternative economic options for there to be real impact on supply globally just the way that we talk about in Australia that users need real public health support to reduce addiction in order for us to achieve the kind of real impact that we want on trafficking into Australia, which as we know, is so insulated from um, police seizures at the border purely because it's just such a lucrative trade. So, if we look back at the 2001 ban, it was essentially an arrangement of aid money for the bans to be implemented by the Taliban. And the problem was that the Taliban, weren't able to or cognizant of offering the kind of alternatives that meant that remote communities with no other way to make money and feed their families essentially could fill that gap financially for them. And so, what it meant is that the opium traders who gave seasonal loans to opium growers then had a season worth of farmers who basically defaulted on their loans, weren't able to pay it, and were forced to sell all sorts of things from land and livestock to even in some cases, daughters. So I think that in this instance, for it to be effective and sustainable long-term, the big question for me is, what's the alternative going to be for these local communities so that essentially it's just impossible to police this moving forward? What are your thoughts on the capacity to to implement the ban long term? And for our listeners, shortly after this ban was implemented, 9-11 happened. So obviously, we weren't able to see what the long term capacity to enforce it was.
7: Look, Tegan, I I mean, I agree with you in a a normal sense. I definitely agree with you in the sense that if we were to look at the history of banning of opium production in, say, Thailand, where there is almost no opium production now, uh, when you combine those, those supply and demand measures, you definitely have a better impact. I do remember this, though, which is as a result of the Taliban's efforts in 2000, we did see, so at the time, Australia was, um, was almost a decade into a, a, a really a heroin epidemic, uh-huh. which included at one stage, you know, the, the Prime Minister Bob Hawke standing up uh, in front of the media crying because his daughter was addicted, you know, across various, to heroin, across various layers of society, Amongst many things that ended that epidemic was the fact that there was a global shortage in heroin supply in general, and that was most definitely driven by production reduction in both the Golden Triangle and in Afghanistan. I also think, though, that there's a real imperative for the Taliban to do this. So if we look back into Afghanistan's more recent history, heroin and opium poppy have funded the Mujahideen in their fight against the Russians, during their invasion, heroin and the civil war years that directly followed um, the withdrawal of the Russians, heroin supported and was used to pay for fighters and, and weapons when the Americans withdrew support from the Mujahideen. Then, in fact, heroin was used, and opium poppy was used in taxation on it by the Taliban to fund their forces. Then it was stopped in the 2000, then for the last two decades, it's become a key funding source. So I think one of the things that will drive drive the Taliban forward to do something about this will simply be the fact that they fear that opium poppy production will be used by warlords and oppositions to fund fighters to fight them and to fund the purchase of equipment. I think that will be what drives them. Now the second part of that is is that um, the Taliban government. Will need to find alternative sources of income. And as it stands at the moment, it seems they're pretty certain that they're going to get that sort of support uh, from the Chinese Communist Party and from Russia, amongst many other countries. So I think from the, that perspective, there'll be a there'll be a geopolitical and a national security imperative for them to dry up the opium production process. Now, where that leaves the locals, and I think that's the the, the most difficult part about it is that we're going to see some very specific social implications that we hadn't quite planned for across uh, Afghanistan as Uh that opium trade is is really cut down on.
3: It's interesting that this checks out with what we have seen historically, that places where there is ongoing insecurity and conflict are consistently exploited by both transnational Serious organised crime groups and by and feature, feature drug production so I'd like to take us over to our region then and ask you so the impacts of the Myanmar coup and on the extensive negative impacts of COVID-19 on security in the region what do you think this spells for poppy production in the goal, in the golden triangle rather and how this could then affect flows into Australia Look, I mean, in general, until now
7: and until the arrival of COVID, what we saw is a, is a really good downward movement in the amount of land used to cultivate opium poppy in Myanmar and Laos, okay? So some time ago, it had been completely stopped in, uh, for all intents and purposes in um, northern Thailand, but in Myanmar and Laos, what we saw is, is this slow decline uh, with uh, several fairly um, successful projects being implemented by the UN amongst other groups, uh, replacement with uh, coffee. Now, along came um, the coup, and it did two things. First off, it slowed down that economic growth, and secondly, it pushed people back into the countryside. The wave of COVID-19 did the same thing. So people who had previously moved to major capital cities moved back to the countryside. And then what we've also seen is some of those ethnic groups who are, and ethnic militias who are opposing the new government uh, they're looking for ways in which to gain income and opium poppy becomes one of those prime resources. So now all that's fine, but if you, you can produce all the opium poppy you want, but if you haven't got a market to send it to, then it's really irrelevant, which is why sort of the production of synthetic drugs like amphetamines have been so important in Myanmar. Uh, but now what we see is a real change. The thing, on our, the thing I guess, the, uh, the joker in our hand is that unlike synthetics, the production of, of plant-based drugs like heroin based on opium means that you're really limited by growing seasons. Um, so you just can't grow a crop um, and increase the output overnight. So uh, what I sort of sit there and think is, is that over the next year or two, probably closer to two years, We'll see a complete change in the market and the flow of heroin globally. I think what we'll see is a is a distinct increase in opium production in um, Myanmar, specifically, and possibly Laos, and we'll see a rerouting of global supply chains. Because one lesson we've really learned is that, um, especially with heroin addiction, what we'll see is people do, you know, they don't tend to, it's not like if we run out of cigarettes People don't just stop smoking. Um, Don't stop smoking, you know. Look, what they'll do is they'll find alternatives. And similarly, with heroin, what we'll see is people either dislocate to synthetic opioids um, or alternatively to other forms of synthetic drugs.
3: And I think we're already seeing the beginnings of that. So the recently released UNODC Global Drug Report stated that in particularly Sweden and Estonia and Finland as examples, the use of heroin has been almost entirely replaced by the use of synthetic opioids like fentanyl. So this sort of suggests that, like you're saying, without the restriction of there being a certain amount that that can be produced annually because of the seasons, the market be, could be producing greater amounts of drugs and given that we know the demand and use in Australia has been steadily increasing even in the last you know five, six years, despite the fact that we're no longer in the kind of epidemic surge of the 90s, the demand is here and Australia is essentially a relatively untapped market for synthetic opioids.
7: Yeah, look, I think one of the one of the attractions for organised crime with synthetic opioids has always been that because it's so strong, to move hundred hits is a smaller amount if you're using synthetics than say a hundred street hits that you're moving in, in pure form of heroin. So, in terms of, of organised crime, there's some real advantages of that. If you speak to sort of users, um, there's a distinct fear. We saw this in in North America, uh, both in Canada and the US, which is um, synthetic opioids lead to higher rates of um, drug overdoses, incredibly strong, incredibly dangerous. And, And users understand that as well. It's very, very difficult to do it. And we've seen, you know, we saw, we've seen this still playing out in North America. So I guess my next thing with that would be that, you know, look, In the interim, I think perhaps synthetic opioids may be increased, especially their production out of countries like uh, China. And certainly we've seen that over the last several years as a source country for synthetic opioids. But still my money is, is that I still think what we'll see is a drought over the next 12 to 18 months, followed by a real flood of opium and heroin coming out of Southeast Asia and specifically the Golden Triangle. And that means that there's going to be all new routes that are required and drug trafficking routes that are required because the market's. This is going to, go to, going to go to Europe, North Africa. And so, you know, Australia's never really been a big destination for um, Afghani heroin. It's never been a big destination for um, synthetic opioids as well. So I, I think that, you know, if we look at this as a global problem and it's going to require law enforcement to pivot over the next year or two, and really it's one of those spaces where we're going to need some really strong criminal intelligence to be able to sit there and watch how the market is changing.
3: Mm, matched with perhaps some really innovative public health approaches that focus on mitigating that domestic demand.
7: Look, that's always my case. You know, at the end of the day, we have to decriminalise addiction. Uh, arresting addicts on that side is never is never helpful. Um, and in fact, you know what we saw with the last heroin epidemic was that you know needle exchanges keep keep um, users alive. We see less overdoses. We've seen the of needle like, um, safe injection rooms, et cetera, in uh, Sydney have shown this time and time again. Um, so look, I always sort of sit there and go, you know, Australia's drug policy is based on three things, which is the supply and harm reduction, two, and um, sorry, supply and demand reduction and harm minimization. And the three work together. Um, what we've talked about here is very much all about um, supply but you can't fight supply without doing the other two things as well
0: that's a wrap on this episode this week you heard conversations with peter jennings executive director of ASPI; michael shubridge director of defense strategy and national security at aspie and dr marcus hellier senior analyst at aspie dr robert glasser head of ASPI's climate and security policy center spoke to anastasia Kapetis, national security editor of ASPE's commentary site, The Strategist, and Dr. John Coyne, head of ASPE's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program, spoke to Dr. Tegan Westendorf, analyst with ASPE's Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.